Welcome to St. Andrew's Sunday. Jack, it's always great to have you serving us every year. We have the same piper, and he does a wonderful job. And choir, thank you to you. Yep. And a thanks to our choir. As you know, we did all three services the same. So last night, our choir, the entire team was here ministering to our Saturday night crowd. That's quite a sacrifice. And again, friends, thank you for your ministry to us on this special day. This matters a lot to us, this St. Andrew's uh, weekend. This is the uh, Sunday before uh, All Saints Day when we celebrate those saints of our church who have gone on to be with the Lord. And of course, this is a particularly profound weekend this year because this Saints, All Saints Eve, this... Uh, Tuesday, we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the launch of the Reformation when Luther posted his 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door. An amazing thing. If you want to join me on the journey to those sites, you'll, you can find some information about that. There's an information night coming up soon, and we'd love to have you uh, be able to see that in person right there in Wittenberg. Uh, I thought it would be really uh, interesting to note that we have a member who this day will uh, celebrate uh, a life that has been lived one-fifth of that entire 500 years. For today, Ruth Askren celebrates her 100th anniversary. Let's have a big hand for Ruth. We are returning after a couple of week hiatus to our journey through Romans. We are going to continue hard through this all the way into Advent, and then we will pick it up after the the first of the year and continue throughout. This is a a big and deep book. We're we're looking at Paul's magnum opus. It was the most important, most theologically uh, well-considered book that Paul ever wrote. It was really a letter, and so we are going to hit it. And today we're going to hit it particularly hard because we come to what may be one of the most important paragraphs ever written in the Scriptures. We come to Romans chapter 3. I invite you to open your Bibles up. I want you to uh, walk with me through this text as we are going to do it today. And I'm going to have to also ask you to really buckle up your pew belts because what we're moving into today is some very deep stuff. It's important, it's profound, but it's going to take some effort. So give me a nod of your head that you're willing to lean forward and think and really pay attention to what, what God, I think, wants to tell us through this deep and wonderful passage of Scripture. And I think in order to set us up, we need to do a little review. So let's go back. I want to remind you of the thesis statement that Paul offers in the very first chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Remember that? 16 and 17. Paul says these profound words, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Let's read it together. Here we go. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For by it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. I told you in these early verses, Paul puts this out there, this thesis statement of what he's going to be speaking of in the coming uh, chapters of Romans. And it's all very exciting, this wonderful image of a salvation, a dunamis. Remember that? A dynamite power salvation that is offered from God. And we actually kind of expect to have him jump right in and explain, so what is this salvation? How has this salvation come about? But we discovered that the Apostle Paul is something of a tease. 
Because he, he sets up this, he, he puts it out there in verse 16, and then he just leaves it there for a while. He leaves us hanging, and we, are, in fact, are not going to come back to that for another couple of chapters, to the, in fact, to the point where we reach finally today. But first of all, Paul wants to speak not of what is this salvation or how this salvation came about. Really, what he wants to talk is, why do you need salvation? And who is it that needs salvation? The answer to the why, of course, is sin. Paul says God is aggrieved. He is angry at the brokenness of this world that he created perfect. He is aggrieved by sin, which has separated him from his creation and separated creation from itself. So that we we read these horrible words that the wrath of God is coming and wrath is deserved when you see something that is so evil, so wrong, so broken, you say that can't remain. And so we discover God's wrath is poured out against those who have broken his heart and broken his laws. And he starts off by talking about those who are the non-Jews in the Gentile world. Gentiles means non-Jews. Pastor Ellis preached on this section. And Paul speaks about how God is angry with them for breaking God's holy law. But you might object, that's not fair. The Gentiles didn't have God's law. How could they possibly know how they are supposed to live in order to please the Lord? And Paul retorts, listen, the word of God, the law of God is written on every human heart. Every human being has a sense of what is right and what is wrong, what pleases God and what does not please God. Even if they don't have the details of it, they have this sense of knowing. And so those who are Gentiles, those who are outside of the law, they still fall under the displeasure of God because they are breaking his holy law. And to this, of course, the Jews would have said, Amen, God, you preach it. You give it to those faithless pagans. And right about that point, you remember, Paul turns his finger, the spotlight shifts right over to the Jews themselves, and suddenly it is very uncomfortable. Some years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Singapore. Singapore is a beautiful and clean and orderly place, as as orderly and clean a city as I've ever visited, as a matter of fact, and there's a reason for that. The Singaporean laws are harsh. They're brutal, in fact, yeah, if you are caught with a, if you're caught chewing gum, for instance, it's a two thousand dollar fine. That's just getting started. If you're a drug dealer, the 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 penalty is death, death by hanging. And if you were a, a a vandal, if you're the reason that their streets are clean is because vandals are caned. Caning is when a martial arts expert takes a half inch rattan cane, soaks it in water, and then beats the criminal with it. And it is excruciating, and it leaves permanent scarring. About the time I was there, an 18-year-old American, Michael Fay, had the distinction of being the first American to receive this punishment because he had confessed to spray-painting cars in Singapore, and so the sentence that he received was four months in prison and six strokes of the cane. Americans were outraged. There were protests and there was political pressure brought to bear and it was all for naught. Singapore released a statement that said, unlike some other societies which may tolerate acts of vandalism, Singapore has its own standards of social order as reflected in our laws. It is because of our tough laws against antisocial crimes that we are able to keep Singapore orderly and relatively crime-free. And today, Michael Fay 
bears the scars of that harsh sentence. So I would ask you, how would you like living in a country with these kind of laws? Maybe if you're a law abider, you would like it. Maybe you like your streets clean and orderly and drug-free. But what if you're a Michael Fay? Or what if you're the father of Michael Fay, living in this land, enjoying the seeming safety and security of it until suddenly it is you who are in the crosshairs. Suddenly it is your son who has broken the law and you are facing at the unflinching, merciless law that is going to deliver a brutal, brutal punishment. And that's what Paul's Jewish readers must have felt when suddenly the spotlight turns from the Gentiles to the Jews. You see, the the Jews, they were the recipients of God's law. They were the guardians of God's law. It was to the Jews that God gave the Ten Commandments and the other laws that he gave about how they ought to live to please him. The Jews were God's covenant people. They were safely his. They had nothing to be afraid of. And suddenly Paul lowers the boom on them too. He tells them that they are hypocrites that they also have broken God's law and they are just as guilty as the Gentiles, which would have been horrific for the Jews to hear. That's where we were for these last two chapters. That's where Paul goes after that little teaser that comes in chapter 1, verse 16. He, he leaves that and for two chapters he goes into great depth about what I've just told you. And finally he sums it up. Take a look in, in your Bibles now if you have them open. He sums it all up in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, when he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? His answer is no, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. It would have been a horrifying thing for the Jews to hear this. And just to drive home his point... Paul quotes their own scriptures to them. He strings together, as you find right after that passage, he strings together a list of seven Old Testament quotations from different writers in which he underscores the very point he has just made. Listen to what of some, some of the, the, the texts that he quotes. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And this is their own scriptures. The Jews were condemned by their own Torah. This long chunk of Romans that we are just completing from chapter 1 verse 18 through the first half of chapter 3, it's kind of unremitting, honestly. And Paul intends for it to be, for he hammers away at the same theme again and again. He's saying, every human being, every Gentile, Every Jew is sinful. Every human being deserves God's wrath. Every human being needs saving. Unbelievers are guilty. The moralists are guilty. The Jews are guilty. All religionists are guilty. And all are in need of salvation. (laughs) Really, you're kind of winded by the time you have waded through these passages. It's brutal. And it's why preachers like to skip over this section of Romans. Because it's not very user-friendly. It's not very seeker-sensitive. But it is essential, beloved. Because we can't know how good the good news is unless we know how bad the bad news is. The bad news is we all need saving. And most Americans don't believe that about themselves. Most Americans think that they are pretty darn good. 
Most Americans believe that they can earn God's favor by their good behavior. Most Americans believe that everybody but Hitler goes to heaven. Hitler never makes anyone's list. And if you don't believe that that is our American theology, you just listen to the dribble that is spoken at any funeral you attend, or most funerals you attend. Have you ever heard someone stand up and say, you know, old Ralph was a pretty awful guy and he hated God. I think he's probably in hell right now. No, you never hear that. Everybody, even old Ralph, they're all going to heaven. All Americans go to heaven. We like the idea of a moral law that when it applies to those bad people, it's only when we realize that we too stand under the judgment of God's law that we too deserve to be punished. It's only then that we really hear the good news. And it's like we've gone 15 rounds with Paul. We are seated in our corner. We are pummeled. We are bruised. We are desperate. And it is only then, only then when he has, he has beaten the pretense out of every one of us does Paul deliver the good news with which he teased us back in chapter 1, verse 16. Are you ready for some good news? Here it is. John 3, uh, Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I loved Saturday mornings when I was growing up as a kid, in part because that was cartoon morning. Remember those days, folks? You know, today they got entire cart, uh, you know, channels that are devoted to 24-hour cartoons. In those days, we had three hours, boy, and you better make the most of it, right? And so my parents had to lock the doors to keep me from jumping up at the crack of dawn so that I could watch cartoons. And my favorite cartoon was Mighty Mouse. How many remember Mighty Mouse? Remember Mighty Mouse's famous saying? Here it is. Listen. Here I come to save the day. That means that Mighty Mouse... I used to march around in front of the TVs. Here I come. Only my voice was much higher in those days. I loved Mighty Mouse. Well, after all of the hard news that we have listened to in these last two chapters, in verse 21, it's like God is crying out to the world, here I come to save the day. And it starts with two sweet words. But now. But now, all of this that we've heard, all of the brokenness of humanity, no one has excuse. Everyone is under God's wrath. No one can save themselves. But now, he says. And finally, God's salvation has come. Paul comes back with the theme that he introduced in chapter 1, verse 16. Remember the word righteousness? The righteousness of God. And I told you then that it's a very rich word that has a number of different nuances. But the word that I want us to focus on, the definition of it is this. God is righteous because he keeps his covenant promises. God is a keeper of his covenant promises. Remember that, that 
that separation that occurred began back in Eden when our parents, our, our first parents, they threw aside all that God had given to them and they ended up being cast out. And we see almost immediately within a few chapters of the Holy Scriptures, God reaching out again, seeking to restore that which was lost in Eden. He approaches a pagan named Abram in the Cal, Ur, uh, Ur of the Chaldees. And, and he says to this man, and we're going to hear more about him next week, by the way. And he says, listen, I want you to leave where you are, and I want you to be my man. I will be your God. You will be my people. And out of you, I will make a great nation. And through that nation, I will bless the world. And it started so promisingly, and it failed so miserably in so many ways, at least on the people's side, because they don't keep their word. They didn't keep their covenant. God said, you do this, and I'll do this. They didn't do this. But God did his part. God kept his word. It's a wonderful offer. And Paul finally says, now, after centuries of waiting, our faithful, covenant-keeping God has kept his promise to restore a face-to-face relationship with his children. And we discover finally, because this wasn't mentioned before, how that is possible. He says, through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ. That was the piece that was missing in verse 16 of chapter 1. Now he says, this salvation, this dynamo, dynamic, dynamite salvation, this is available through faith in Jesus Christ. He goes on to the verse that is one of the most well-known verses in the book of Romans. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? That's a summary. Do you see now? It's a summary of everything that he's been saying. But this time he doesn't stop there. And he continues... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That is such a dense passage of scripture. It is so rich and we need to break it down a little bit to understand the power of what we've just read which one commentator described as the most important paragraph ever written. So, I want to look at three words. First of all, justified, grace, and propitiation. All right? Say that last word. It's just fun to say it. Go. Propitiate. Don't have a clue what you're saying, but there it is. Propitiation. You'll use it tomorrow. First of all, let's look at justified. Justified was a term out of the courthouse. It was a legal term at the time. And it it was a picture of a person who was standing before a judge... Now remember, Paul has just spent two chapters telling us that we are guilty as charged. We are all deserving of God's wrath, right? Yet now as we stand there embracing to hear God's verdict, instead of hearing what we expect, instead of hearing what we deserve, guilty, incredibly we hear the words, not guilty. God should have condemned us. Instead, he justifies us. Got it? It's a law term. It's a courthouse term. God justifies us. And Paul says that justification is a gift of, and here's that second word, grace. Say grace. It may be the most wonderful, uniquely Christian word, grace. Grace is, is a, it's a, a wonderful uh, demonstration of God's undeserved, unearned favor. God reaches out to us in our desperate straits, And he pours out kindness upon us even when we deserve his wrath and deserve his judgment. Instead, he responds with this gift of grace. It's important for you to understand that grace is more than mercy. Sometimes we think of the two as the same. It's not the same. 
Grace is a step beyond. Mercy is not getting something we got coming to us. Grace is getting way more than we have, than we deserve. So if my mom says, son, you cannot have another cookie, and if you have a cookie, you're going to get a spanking. If I decided to roll the dice and go for the cookie and she catches me, mercy would be what? She doesn't spank me. Grace would be, she gives me another cookie. (laughs) It would be bad parenting, but it would be good grace, right? God is more than merciful, we discover. God is gracious. One commentator put it this way, and I love this. Let's think about this. The merciful judge says, you are forgiven, you may go. The gracious father says, you are forgiven, you may come. Be adopted as one of my children into my family. Not just, you may go, but you may come. That's how grace deals with our sin. Many years ago, I was at an expensive restaurant with Dad. I doubt that you even remember this, Dad. When the check came, I tried to pay for it. And uh, we got into the regular arm wrestling match that I always got into with my dad. He wouldn't let me. And finally, I said, Dad, why won't you let me pay? And I, I wrote this down. He said, I like to do it. I want to do it. And you can't afford it. <laughs> <laughs> That's grace. It is God in his love doing for us what he wants to do, what he likes to do, and what we can't do for ourselves because we can't afford it. But here's the tough part. How is this right, this gift of grace, this justification by grace, how is it right? A judge who ignores the evidence, a judge who acquits someone even though they are clearly guilty would be considered monstrous, wouldn't they? We would be horrified, and we are horrified when we see miscarriages of justice like that. So how can a righteous God simply wink at our sin, ignore it, ignore our guilt, and pretend that we are something that we are not? For in fact, we are not innocent. Paul made that very clear for two chapters, and yet God acquits us. So how can that be? And here we come to that wonderful third word, propitiation. Say it, please. We move from the courthouse to the altar. For this is the language of of a sacrifice. Propitiation. It was a sacrificial uh, uh, act. Uh, A lamb would be taken. A perfect lamb, a spotless lamb would be taken to the altar and its throat was cut as a sin offering for the people and its blood sprinkled upon the altar. That was a propitiation. It propitiated the wrath of God. It held the wrath of God back. The There was a price to be paid. The sins of the people were not swept under the rug. They were not ignored. There was a price to be paid, but it was the lamb's lifeblood that was substituted for human life. When Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb of God, was crucified, he offered his lifeblood as a propitiation. The sin sacrifice for the world, Paul says. Remember God's wrath against sin that we spent two chapters unpacking? Well, Jesus, the perfect and beloved son, put himself in our place. He said, I will take that wrath. I will take that judgment upon myself. It's why as he hung there, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because in that moment, the wrath and the judgment of God came upon him. 
He said, I will substitute my life for theirs. Our sins were not swept under the rug. They were washed away by the sacrifice of the sinless Son of God who could do for us out of His love and grace what no single person could ever do for himself or herself. And right here is the incredible heart of the gospel. The gospel that Paul first mentioned back there in chapter 1 that he teased us with in verse 16 of chapter 1. It is that God loved us. God loved you so much that out of his grace, he sent his own son who willingly took your place. Take note of this. God provided his own sin sacrifice. We didn't even have to provide it. God provided because we he was the only one that could. Jesus bore God's wrath against evil. He bore our judgment. He paid our price. So that when we stand before God in judgment, he can say, ah, it's you. I cannot justly punish you because somebody has already taken your punishment upon himself. In a moment, as our tradition is on this St. Andrew's weekend, we're going to scroll now 350 names. When you see Tom Everett, by the way, that's the beginning of my, he was my first funeral here. And we're going to remember every member of this church who has left this world. And here's the thing about this list. It's never finished. Every year, new names are added. Someday, your name will be added. Someday, my name will be added. Someday, your loved ones are going to stand. My children are going to stand, I hope, in honor of my life on a St. Andrew's Sunday. And before that day comes, though, you who have breathed your last will have already stood before God to give an account of your life on this earth. And either God will render judgment to you based upon your righteousness, and we've seen how well well that has worked out for people down through the generations, or he's going to render judgment on the basis of his son's righteousness, the one who has offered to pay your debt and to present you faultless before the Father. Don't you want to hear the words, you may come. So as you watch these words stream by, I invite you to reflect upon one simple question. When my name appears on that list, will I be ready to stand before my God? And if you have received his free gift of grace through Jesus Christ, the answer is yes.